you'll go ahead and we'll continue this morning in Mark. We are in chapter 9, verse 33 through 37. And if you're taking notes, you can see notes there on the back of the bulletin. The three points that we're looking at this morning are the terrible argument often promoted, the kingdom principle violated, the picture of the principle modeled. All right. How many of you have ever been in an argument? Maybe maybe a few, a couple. Okay, yeah, yeah. How many of you have ever won an argument? Right? Everybody's like, yeah. <laughs> and all of a sudden it's like, I don't know if I should admit that. And then it's like, if you ask if you've won, it's like, that's right. Count me in. Uh, right? Some of us, you know, even are pretty good at arguing. And um, how many of you know someone and I'm sure it's not yourself, but they like to argue, right? You probably know someone like that. Uh, and then you don't have to answer this because we're starting to get more personal. But how many, and just again ask yourself this, how many of you find yourself regularly arguing with others? As we look at our text this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about we're going to, we see an argument in front of us, and we're going to talk about it. And so we're raising this question just about what argument can look like. There's argument in Scripture we see that we would classify as defending the Lord and His gospel. And that type of argument is a little different, isn't it? Uh, in terms of what could be acceptable in terms of defending or arguing. However, even that, right, even that, like defending the word of God or, or discussing and, and, and getting into an argument over what's in the scriptures, even that, depending on the mode, motive, uh, could be reflective of a pharisaical heart as opposed to a God-glorifying heart, right? So we have to be careful there. Uh, the argument that I want to talk about this morning that I think our text is reflective of, and that is in a type of arguing that is defending the self. Okay. For example, all my arguments with my wife is her defending herself. Right? That was, that's a joke, y'all. Okay. That's wrong. It, it's me, right? It's me defending my, myself. It, my arguments with my wife are me wanting my prefer, preferences. It's me wanting to hold on to a particular desire that I have. Now, is she arguing to defend herself? I'm, you can ask her, all right? But this morning, we're going to try to, as much as possible, to look at what we see in the disciples here in Mark 9 and, and, and then do a reflective sort of study and, on our own heart. The Lord tells us throughout the Scriptures not to argue. It's quite a bit, actually. Philippians 2.14, let me just read some of you. Some of them to you. Philippians 2.14, do everything without grumbling and arguing. 1 Timothy 2.8, I want men in every place lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. 2 Timothy 2.14, don't fight about words. This is useless and leads to ruin of those who listen. It's don't argue, right? 2 Timothy 2.16, 
avoid irreverent and empty speech, since those who engage in it will produce even more godlessness. So there's arguing again. Stay away from it. 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy uh, 23 and 24, 2, 23 and 24, it says, Reject foolish and ignorant arguments because you know they, br- they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Titus 3, 2, slander no one, avoid fighting. Titus 3, 9, avoid foolish debates, and genealogies, arguments, disputes about the law because they're unprofitable and are worthless. And just goes through, we just keep looking at different parts of Scripture, instruct us as the church not to argue with one another. Arguing shows, hear this, arguing shows that we are not led by the Spirit. It signals to everyone, when we argue, it's signaling to everyone, I'm still a worldly person. Right? As first. 1 Corinthians 3.3 says, there Paul's talking to the Corinthian church, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you are not yet ready for it. In fact, he says to them, you're still not ready. And how does he discern that? The next line, the next phrase there, he says, because you're still worldly. And, and how does he, why does he call them Worldly. So he's speaking to it. And I just hope that, that this wouldn't be able to be said of us, right? We want to guard against 1 uh, Corinthians 3 3 needing to be written to us in a letter, right? How does he describe them as worldly? Well, he says, For since there is envy and strife among you, that's a sign that you're worldly, right? There's envy and strife among you, and you're not. You're simply behaving like mere humans, he says. And as Christians, that's interesting, right? We're not mere humans. Those who have, have looked to Christ, we're supposed to be filled with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, and right? We're, we're not mere humans anymore. We're children of God. And so he says you can't act like mere humans. Right? When there is rivalry, dissension, and strife among us, we identify as those who are not humble. Are you in a relationship this morning that's causing strife? Rivalry? Are you in a relationship this morning? And I'm just speaking like of some type of friendship, a marriage, a relationship with, with someone in your extended family, a child, right? Are you in a relationship causing strife, rivalry? Are you in a relationship comparing, critiquing, competing, judging? As Proverbs 13.10 says, where there is strife, there is pride. So if you're in a relationship like that, one thing we can be certain of is there's pride there. And pride destroys. And so as we open our passage this morning, we see there was strife. There was pride. And how do we know there was pride? Because there was arguing. What motive caused them to spin off into this argument? Well, we could add there selfish ambition, and we'll talk about that. What motive, right? What motive caused them to spin, causes us even to spin off into arguing? Think of it for yourself, right? 
Selfish ambition, a desire for position, for status, a desire for a place of honor, a desire to be the most spiritual, the most wise, the most discerning, whatever, fill in the blank. Now let's look at the text and see where we're getting this from this morning. Beginning there in verse 33, I'll just read uh, to verse 37. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you, so this is Jesus, he's asking, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. Hmm. So first we see the terrible argument that's often promoted. So we see it here in the text, but it's often promoted in the church today. It's often promoted in our lives, I think, if we are honest and examine ourselves. And we see, as we'll see this morning, we see that it's, it was often uh, present even in the disciples' lives, even as they walked with Jesus. Right? The, fall, the disciples will fall into this same argument on several occasions, the exact same argument. And we in the church get trapped in this as well, and we've got to guard against it. So what's the topic of the argument? What's the topic? Who is the greatest? That's right. So think of it. Think of that for just a second. Like all of us, we feel like, yeah, we're way too spiritual to get caught up in that argument. Right? Right? Because here's what it sounds like. Like, let's say, hey, uh, I want to invite you all over to my house after service this morning, and we're going to discuss who the better preachers are in the church. You know, here we've been blessed at Southern Hills with a number of men who want to preach and can preach and teach the word, some more seasons than others, some more gifted than others, but, but that's just not enough. We want to assess which one of them is the best, and we want to rank them. So we're going to get together after church tonight, today, and, and tonight we'll rank them at my house, right? Right, because we want to know who the greatest is. What's wrong with that? I mean, don't you want to know? Right, you're already intrigued. Sinner, <laughs> right? <laughs> Goodness, come on, right? Who is the greatest? That's a topic that's up for debate right here in our text. And it's a terrible argument that is often promoted, isn't it? Uh, let's assess for a minute, just thinking about it, what makes it so terrible. First, they are trying to attach, these disciples are trying to attach a value to something that they don't have the spiritual equipment in place to be able to assess. You see, we can assess who the greatest sprinter is, okay? We, we can assess who the greatest strongman is, all right? But when it comes to the kingdom of God and the kingdom work of God, things are not measured in the same way. Greatness in the kingdom of God is defined very different as we'll see in Jesus' response here in a little bit in verse 35. So there's one reason it's a terrible argument. Another reason it's a terrible argument is because it reflects worldly ideals. All right? 
and, and promotes unhealthy uh, comparisons and produces attitudes of competitiveness that ultimately destroys unity. See, it, it, I'll say it again. It promotes, and that's a worldly ideal, right? Promoting unhealthy comparisons and producing attitude of competitiveness that ultimately destroys unity. You've heard of sibling rivalry, right? Yeah? Yeah, anybody experience that just personally? Well, you can look in the Bible right away, right? We see it happening, Cain and Abel. The sibling rivalry doesn't work out very well, does it? If you know the story of Cain and Abel, Cain murdered his brother Abel. Why? Because God preferred the way Abel was living his life, and it made, the Bible tells us it made Cain furious and despondent, and he, why? Well, he wanted to be preferred over his brother, right? But the thing was, is that he also wanted to live for himself. So Cain and Abel could have been, think of that, especially siblings, even right now, all of us should think this way, but... Think of that. Think of all that you're missing out on. Cain and Abel could have been best friends in service to God. They could have been tight brothers and got so much accomplished. But Cain lost everything because of this. Right? Cain's fleshly comparison and competitiveness right, destroyed him. Abel just was in his way of being the greatest, of being preferred. So he killed him. So we have that. That's the sibling rivalry of Cain and Abel. We could talk more about Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers. They all found themselves in arguments promoting unhealthy comparisons. Are you doing that in your life? Constantly critiquing and examining others? Promoting unhealthy comparisons driven by attitude of competitiveness and critical heart and insecurity, really with your own identity is what's happening. That's the story of all this sibling rivalry, and it's, I think, our story when we get caught up in this as well. Driven by attitude of competitiveness, critical heart, and insecurity of our own identities. That's what it's reflective of. All these things come from worldly, fleshly desires and fears. You know that? The world is grasping for value. We're grasping for one-upmanship. For that, well, at least I'm better. Have you heard yourself say that before? Well, at least I'm better than so-and-so. Right? World is, is grasping to put a salve on their gaping wounds. You see that in the world, don't we? The world is grasping for, for salve to, and bandages to put on their wounds of insecurity. That's the, it's the focus of their life. Now think of being chosen. Think of the disciples, right? Of being chosen as one of the twelve by the God-man. Oh, man. Well, that's a hard recipe for being humble. Don't you think? I mean, it's like, yeah, we can get on them really a lot here. Like, they're talking about which, which one of them is the greatest. But they, they are just chosen as like one of the 12 by the God-man, okay? Like, there's nobody better, right? And, and so they, it, it went to their heads. Man, it can go to our heads. Because they were right. They were in the right place with Jesus. 
right? But it could go to their heads, and it did. It fed their flesh, and it dragged them into worldly ideals, worldly passion for success and value and self-importance. And I hope this morning you can see with this description that this is an argument that in the flesh all of our hearts cry out for. I think it is one of those things that it is very easy to dismiss, right, and say, I don't struggle with this argument. That's because most of us aren't sitting around or having people over to discuss how great we are, right? It's not that obvious. But I think as we just reflect it, I think if we really get underneath it a little bit, we say, yeah, I'm, I can see areas of my life where I'm positioning with that kind of agenda. And likely it's because of your own insecurity. And we see that in them. In the kingdom of God, this argument for greatness is such a terrible argument and a divisive time waster. Think of this. This is, it, it, it's such a terrible argument and a divisive time waster because God doesn't need the greatest. You see that? God doesn't need the greatest to accomplish his kingdom work. God doesn't need the greatest to have success. You think of that. You know how freeing that is? You know how freeing that is? Because some of you are like, we're, we're calling you to, to you know, the, the job of the pastors here is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And some of you are calling you to, to go and make disciples and to get involved in relationships where you're sharing the word of God and you're like, oh, I've not been to school. I don't feel equipped. I don't know that I can do that. And, and I'm just probably not the best person. Well, God doesn't need you to be the best one. He just needs you to be willing, right, and, and obedient. And so how freeing it is that he doesn't need the greatest, right? And that's freeing for me personally. It's freeing to be honest that I'm not here because I'm the most talented. It's freeing to be honest that I'm not here because I'm the best, best uh, preacher and most capable leader. Right? It's freeing to be comfortable with just accepting the reality that this congregation wouldn't have had to work very hard at all to find someone more qualified and gifted than me. Right? You know, freeing, that, that doesn't hurt my feelings. Boy, it's freeing to just live under that. Okay, because God doesn't need the greatest, right? If he did, I wouldn't be here, right? And you know, it takes a humble church to be willing to follow a mediocre shepherd. Because the reality is that when you look at the task in front of each one of us, no matter how great any of us are, we all fall short of what is needed to accomplish the kingdom work that God has placed in front of us. You know, churches do nationwide searches to find the best, and they spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to find the best and greatest pastor for whatever, right? And a couple of just reflective points on that and how we've just, that's a, we're, we're adopting a worldly value system in that. Right? Think of it. Why, let's make a couple of points on that. Why uh, does any one church deserve to have the best shepherd? Right? The best preacher. Right? Maybe the best shepherd would be wasting a lot of his abilities, especially if he's trying to lead a stiff-necked sheep. 
So we have to think of that. What makes us think we deserve the best? And secondly, God doesn't need the most talented in place. This goes back to the point we just made. God doesn't need the most talented in place to do the work through the local church that he wants to do. He just needs people who will be prayerful, obedient, and trusting. Right? He just needs a people that will trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And it really is that simple. But the argument for greatness, boy, it comes in, corrupts all that. And it overshadows these three things of being praying, prayerful, trusting, and obedience with being great, successful, and winning. And then what happens in the church is there's not much thought being given to attaching ourselves to people that are humble, prayerful, and trusting, obedient. Instead, we're really into attaching ourselves to people that are great because we want to be great. Maybe the disciples understood this on some level because if you look there in the text in verse 33, after Jesus asked the question, what were you arguing about on the way? There in verse 34, it says, they were silent. You see that? So I think they understood something. They were silent. Silent to the question because they knew what they were doing was terrible. Right? They knew it wasn't profitable. They knew it wasn't honorable. And so I imagine on some level that they can see Jesus, when Jesus points it out to them, that their argument was fruitless, selfish, prideful. They knew Jesus would not approve, so they were silent. Their argument had them going at each other. Right? More reasons why we are told not to argue is because it's filled with selfish ambition, which by definition destroys unity. And the mission of the kingdom of God is not accomplished without unity. You hear that? The mission that we're put on in the kingdom of God cannot be accomplished unless, church, we learn to be unified. How important it th this is, right? So that takes us to our second point. We can see that they are violating kingdom principles all over the place. Look there at verse 35. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. Right? Jesus had told them about his humiliation, and they are consumed in the, verse 35 with their exaltation. Jesus had just told them in the previous section about his humiliation. I would suffer and die. And what they are consumed, right there, we see they are consumed with their exaltation. Man, that's interesting. That's sad, isn't it? You might need to write that down. I encourage you to. Maybe think about it. Meditate on it. And that's this, write it down. Jesus just told them about his humiliation and they are consumed with their exaltation. Write that down maybe and ask the Holy Spirit this week to protect you and us from this level of dissonance. Right? From, from where, this, this level of difference from, from where Jesus is at and where he is calling us to be. When we have selfish, when you have selfish ambition, what is that? Let's say it this way. 
a priority desire for your own success. Oh. Okay. Uh, when you have selfish ambition, you have a priority desire for your own triumph. When you have selfish ambition, in, in whatever situation, you have a priority desire for your own victory, for your own comfort. Selfish ambition, you have a priority desire for your own care. And you are violating kingdom principles in that. You're, you, you're violating, right, gospel principle. And it's selfish, and selfishness ruins relationships. Do you have a relationship in your life that is being ruined? There's a good chance this is the reason why. Your priority desire for self. Right? It's not her, it's you. Okay? It's not the kids, it's you. The problem isn't your boss, it's you. How about this? Are you battling contentment here in the church? Maybe the church isn't the problem. Maybe the problem is a priority desire for self. These are really important questions. These are the harder questions to ask, and i got to tell you, these aren't the questions I go to first. <laughs> Normally I'm blaming first, right? But man, if the Holy Spirit and the Word would allow us to go there first, look inward, we'd be in a much better place, wouldn't we? You won't... Well, let me tell you something that, that I was always, it, it, it's not really that profound, but, but as I was studying and thinking about it, it just hit me, and you're like, well, duh, but okay, so I needed, I needed to hear this, I guess, but you can't be selfish and at the same time say you love others, and that just hit me. There is a love in selfishness, okay? It's called self-love, but self-love destroys unity, and we are taught self-love by our culture, and certainly if we listen and obey our own flesh, right? This is an evil teaching. It masquerades itself as love, prioritizing self-care, and this language has made its way into the church. Consider the argument that defends a right for a woman to abort her baby, she has a justified and moral priority to care first for herself. That is what she is told. And it's sad and shallow for what about the other human life growing inside her womb? But this principle of self-love and self-care is what she is told and taught she must give priority to so therefore she's not thinking about a child in her womb and she's trained to not think that way in our culture but now translate that to our text here have you adopted this kind of attitude of self-love a priority for self-care right and we can see it clearly doesn't bring unity it brings evil it brings murder we can see it in the extreme that we just listed here 
with respect to abortion, but self-love destroys unity at every level. James talks about, you have, but you don't, right, you don't get it, and so you end up killing and destroying one another. He's, he's even speaking to this and talking about uh, selfishness and self-centeredness and pride. So here we see more kingdom principles violated, unity, love. Biblical gospel love, church, not lustly love, right, that loves to get. There's a difference, right? We're not after lustly love that loves to get, right? We're after the love Jesus gives that shows and calls us to a life of sacrifice and service, right? It's a love, as it says here, it's a love that looks to serve, not be served. A love that looks to serve, not be served. Think of the things God's people, His church, is called to. Consider our partnership, Philippians 1.27. says there in Philippians 1.27, stand firm, one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Selfish ambition, if that's present in us, church, we can't strive together, we won't strive together. And selfish ambition, I'm not concerned about the team, I'm concerned about me. Pride, selfish ambition creates a very crumbly foundation. And you can't stand firm on it because, why? Well, because it's subject to someone's feelings, desires, agenda, and expectations. So sometimes I can feel united with a particular person because, with a prideful person, with with the greatest, okay, because I'm playing on their turf. But it's very unstable because it's constantly changing. And if I step off their turf, if I decide they're not the greatest, then I get on their bad side and boy do they make me pay. Right? They make life miserable because nothing makes the great prideful man more frustrated and angry than living and working with people who don't kowtow to their preferences and their preferred order of life. See? See how dangerous pride is? And we see this in the church at the ministry pastoral level. Okay? And we've got to guard against it at every level. Okay? When we try, when you try to come together, right, in in a relationship, and there is pride like what we're talking about in the relationship, it's not a partnership. In fact, it's impossible to have kingdom principle partnership in this setting. It's much more difficult and a lot less stable to circle up around one person's pride, isn't it? It's, it's unstable. The disciples there in verse 35 were on shaky, shaky ground. It destroyed the whole thing. The, the church would have never been able to kick off under this. Right? And they're consumed with what? Status and honor and pride. Their pride was telling them what? And this is this one. It's like, well, I deserve. 
right? You're there at home. Well, I deserve to be treated this way. I deserve to have this or that or the other thing. And that's what they're arguing. You think, I mean, yeah, it's a goofy argument, but you get into the nuts and bolts of that argument, it sounds probably a lot like the way we would argue, right? I deserve, I deserve. But in the kingdom of God, honor's given to the humble. And we're told pride cometh before the fall. If you think you deserve first in the kingdom of God, you'll ensure that you're last. And, and I'll say there's nothing wrong with wanting to be first. It's just that in God's kingdom, being last is first. Being least is first. Being a servant is being a leader. It's easy for us to get that backwards, isn't it? Now the disciples will struggle with Jesus this again and again. And so we see there in 36 that he gives them a picture of the principle to follow. That's our final point this morning. He provides a, a model. First we see it in this child there in 36. He took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but he, but him who sent me. The model's put before us, and there's two parts to this model. One is the child, and the other, of course, is Jesus. First must be last and servant of all. So he takes the child and illustrates this principle. You think of a child, even in our culture, okay, right? You, you know, there it, it can be easy to dismiss a child. No offense, children. Most of them are downstairs, so we'll have less offended, right? But it could be easy to dismiss them, right? We think of, you know, a child, uh, even Proverbs presents it this way. You know, there's the foolishness that's bound up in the heart of the child, okay? So, so children can be foolish, Right, you may want to dismiss them. Certainly, back then, dismiss them. They weren't that significant. They didn't have much. Uh, their opinion didn't matter. They probably wouldn't have even thought to give it, right? And and so they would have dismissed them because of their classification, even within the culture. But in the kingdom of God, this is who we are looking to welcome. Right In the kingdom of God, it's the one that would be like the lower one, the lowest class. Okay, in this case, the child. Right, it's the, He's the one that gets the attention of kings. He's the one given a good seat. He's the one that is given, given preference for uh, their choice of meat, if you will, at the dinner table. Right there at the foot of the cross. There at the foot of the cross, there's a field. And it makes us all equals. And when we have attitudes and visions and aspirations for greatness, we're not standing in that field. That's serious. I need to be, my soul depends on me standing there at the foot of the cross. But when we have attitudes and visions and aspirations for greatness, that's not where I'm at. Right? We don't have eyes for the child. We don't have eyes and hearts for those on the fringes. Right? Because we want to be around people that will make us more great and hang out 
Right? If we're, we're just, it's not going to draw us to be hanging out with children, will it? Because it doesn't assist me in achieving worldly values. But we're not to be driven by those things. We're to be driven by the kingdom of God. Right? And when you welcome, it says here in the text, when you welcome a little child in Jesus' name, you welcome Jesus. And Jesus goes on to verse 37 to say, you are welcoming the one who sent Jesus as well, God the Father. Right? So if you want to be great, according to our text here, you need to live a life that welcomes Jesus and God the Father into it. Then you become, right? You become like the youngest and you spend time inviting the youngest and the unimportant and the sick and the wayward and the hurting into your life. Jesus models this for us. During Jesus' earthly ministry, the disciples struggled with this immensely. Actually, again, in Mark 10, 34, and we'll see when we get there, verse 35, James and John go right back into this argument again. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they teamed up together and tried to secure a place of honor and status with Jesus, right? They they approached him, just a few chapters here later, in the next chapter, they approached him and said, hey, Jesus, allow us to sit at your right and your left in glory. And then worse, over in Luke 22, 24, the disciples are still arguing about who's greater after the Lord's Supper, Right? So there at the, think of what's happening there at the Lord's Supper. Jesus the greatest served them as if he were the least. Right? He served them literally like a servant washing their feet. Right? He served them, Jesus, there at the Lord's Supper. He served them like he was the least important one among them. It's the Last Supper. Right? Why do they call it the Last Supper? Well, because that next day, he would be killed. So sandwiched between him serving them like this, and right before he would be killed for them, here Jesus is, or here the disciples are arguing about which one is greater. My goodness, can you be any more foolish? Yeah, we can. And we are. I hope this morning we can admit it, that we can see it. May the Spirit help us to see it in our own lives. Your Jesus, as they are talking about who is going to be the greatest the night before he died for them, the night before he suffered and went to the cross. And notice then in our passage, here in Mark 9, you look above there in verse 30. Here they are having these arguments right after Jesus spoke to, spoke to them about his suffering and death. They are focused on greatness. I mean, just pause right there. Yo, can we just admit, like, it is easy for us to get off track when it comes to the gospel. It is easy for us to get off track when it comes to living according to the kingdom principles and values. It is easy for us to get off track. I know it is for me when it comes to running after and pursuing God's agenda as opposed to my agenda. 
And we see it here. Here they are. Right after he shares about his suffering and death with them in verses 30 through 32, they are focused on greatness and winning and being the best whatever. And what is Jesus consumed with? In that, in that portion, he's consumed with staying on mission to suffer and die for them. And they're just thinking about themselves. What are you thinking about? What are you meditating on? What consumes your life? What consumes you this morning? You know, the model in front of us is the model that Jesus didn't have to be, but he was. And if we identify with him, we ought to be following that model. And I hope his person is consuming you, and if it's not, I hope that we will in obedience, allow him to consume us. The most important, that we will model what he's modeled for us, that is the most important serving like he's the least important. That's what Jesus did. Are we in that place? Are we interested in that? Luke twenty two twenty six, Jesus tells us that this argument over greatness is not to take place among us. This attitude and argument over greatness ought not to be present here in this church. Right? And it says, whoever is the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And as we said earlier, the youngest eats last, gets leftovers, right? not the choice options, sits in the bath, all these menial tasks. And the older, how many older kids in the room, right? And, and how many, yeah, raise your hand if you're the oldest in your family. All right, at like at all all ages, okay. Raise your hand if you're the youngest, okay. I'm the youngest, all right. And, and it's true, younger. Let's speak for a minute here, okay. Come on, go ahead. Raise your hand, young people, right? The younger. If you're younger, the older one, they always have more rights, don't they? They get away with everything. That's how it was in my house, okay. And it's much easier for the older to assert their authority and dominate, right? And you say, all I have to do is say this one to, to, to make the point. Like, how many have said, you know, I get to sit in the front, I'm the oldest. <laughs> right? Come on. Or I get this because I'm the oldest. We know how it is. Right? But man, Jesus identifies himself not with the older one. Sorry. Right? Jesus identifies himself not with nobility not with the position of honor. Jesus identifies himself here in this text as the youngest one. The one without any position. Isn't that something? The, he identifies himself in that way. I hope that moves our heart this morning. And James tells us along this line, as we think about welcoming a child or welcoming Christ, as we think about welcoming those on the fringes, as we think about who and why we spend our time with who, right? James reminds us of some of this and warning us against the uh, favoritism and how that's a sin. It's opposite of God's heart, right? When we participate in the sin of partiality, that's evil. Think of how Jesus allowed himself to be sinned against as we close this morning. Think of that. Like the youngest. 
right? You don't have much choice if people take advantage of you and sin against you, right? But Jesus, he put himself in that place, so contrary to our view of greatness. How are you with the gospel's contrary view of greatness? How are you with the gospel's contrary view of greatness? Are you okay with it? With eyes of faith, I think we can see there's no better way. There's no better way. With eyes of faith, I think we can see there is no better news. Because if we had to have some level of greatness that would get us in the circle with God, none of us would make it. And let that be good news to you this morning. Like let that encourage you this morning to run to Jesus. And specifically, man, if you've never showed up there at the cross and looked to Christ and put your faith in him, and receive forgiveness of your sins. Right? You don't have to show up to the cross all cleaned up and looking like a good Christian. No. No. If that was the case, none of us could ever get there. Right? We have nothing really to bring to God. And we do not need to pretend that we do. Isn't that freeing? Isn't that freeing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace, for your love. Lord, we ask for help. We need the power of your word and the authority of your spirit to penetrate our hard minds, our hard hearts. Sometimes we are like unthinking animals with the way we just live out our lives and go after things in this life. And we, we are good. I know I have been good at, at compartmentalizing my life. And, and then I miss out on, on living out the kingdom principles you're calling me to in every area. So, Lord, help us to, to see those areas in our life where we have allowed pride and arrogance and these, these attitudes for selfish ambition to, to creep in, where we give priority for self-care and we give priority to ease and rest. Lord, and we miss out on the joy and the fulfillment that comes from just abandoning ourselves and turning ourselves into you and over to you. And there's a joy and a, a fruit and an energy that, that you give by the power of your spirit. But we lack faith and we're afraid that if we start living our lives not to be served, that, Lord, we may not ever end up getting served. And so we're afraid. But, Lord, help us see that if we're in you, we don't need it. And we can, we can pour out like you poured out. Look what you've done. 
Lord, help us to see what you've accomplished for us in the cross. That we would be empowered this morning to walk faithfully and humbly in the good works that you've called us to serving one another from a place of, of love and joy and care. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.